You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Belchunas. Eric, um, how much gaming are you doing during the pandemic? Well, we have Roku, and Roku allows you to get these free old school games. So I have been playing a little Galaga and mini golf and maybe some chess, uh, but that probably doesn't count. Uh, I think my nine-year-old is a better representative. He's become highly addicted to Roblox, which is this interactive platform game. It's kind of cool, and he likes his Nintendo Switch. So I think he's probably more of a representative of like what people are doing in the lockdown in terms of gaming. Uh, but he's definitely gamed more in the past four months. You know, it's a constant battle to, you know, keep him doing other things versus that. But you could feel the pull. Yeah. And my guy's almost five. That pull is for real. Lego. That's his his go to game on the on the phone is all the Lego games. Those are great. He, he also loves and that's representative of a bigger trend, though, Eric. Like, the the gaming industry has just been its rocket ship. What's it look like in the ETF landscape? Yeah, so there's uh, four of them. ESPO, which is Van Eck, up 43% this year. And remember, this is a year where the S&P is up 2%, and emerging markets are down 1%. A lot of these funds have emerging market exposure as well. So 43% is astonishing. Hero is the Global X. That's 47%. Um, Nerd is Roundhill, that's up 46%, and Gamer, G-A-M-R, is ETFMG, that's up 37%. So, and collectively, they have about $500 million, <clears throat> maybe $600 million. To me, that is astonishingly low, given the numbers that I just read off to you. They're having a shiny object moment. The numbers in the video game industry, which we'll go over, are massive. They dwarf some other areas where theme ETFs are, you know, multiple billions, so I hope we can get into that, uh, not only where the performance is coming from, but also why uh, there is some hesitancy from advisors to try to ride this. Uh, there's, it's a little bit of a mystery. And to help us uh, navigate these games, uh, Matt Canterman, a, a Bloomberg Intelligent Analyst, and Will Hershey, who's behind Nerd, that Roundhill ETF you mentioned, are going to be joining us. This time on Trillions... Welcome to the metaverse, the future of the gaming industry. I want to start really just with the nuts and bolts. Start with uh, Will here. You walk into an advisor's office, right? It's a boomer. You know, it's like a 60-year-old advisor. He's got all these wealthy clients. What do you do to pitch him on this industry? What numbers are you throwing at him? Well, I, first I pull out my Atari because that's the only console that he's going to be able to relate to. no. Um, I think at the, at the highest level, you look at the overall gaming industry's revenue figures, and you're talking about, call it for last year, around $150 billion in revenues. 
that's bigger than the global box office and music industries combined. And it's, a, it's an industry that's also growing while other forms of entertainment are shrinking. Um, so coming into coronavirus, I think you're probably looking at high single digit growth rates year over year, kind of for the next few years. I think what we're seeing now with stay at home, you mentioned it in the intro, we're gonna have growth rates that are above that for the next few years. And then the bigger, the bigger question here, and, and I believe that gaming is a secular trend, right? You're playing into the fact that younger people don't wanna be passive in terms of the way that they engage with entertainment. They wanna be involved, whether that's social media or gaming or watching on Twitch, it's more about being involved. And I think, I think what we're seeing going on right now is, is a short-term uptick, but that's more representative of a long-term trend. Um, and that's kind of the high-level pitch I'd make to the advisor. And just real quick, go over the numbers. What's the annual revenue? And give us something that's in uh, close to that for a reference point. You're talking about $150 billion. Um, so there aren't that quite that many reference points. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. And, and there, there's nothing that's like right around that size. I think, Eric, you, you like to point to some of the other thematics. It's bigger than some of the others that have, have garnered way more in terms of assets, right? It's bigger than robotics. It's bigger than cybersecurity. Yeah, th that, those so, numbers would be bigger. And then you got the growth rate. And then I guess I would go back and just say, how do how do those companies produce that revenue? Um, because are people buying games like they used yeah, to? Yeah. Or are they moving on to more? Because I know like with my son, if if I, I asked him last night, if I gave you fifty dollars right now, what would you do with it? <laughs> Twenty five of it he used with for Robux, yeah. And he'd buy like stuff to make his like avatar look better. He'd do this um private server thing. Um, it's all very there's he has a whole ma a plan of what he'll do, but that's a platform that's free. But he's about to spend money on it. So is that the new? Are you way? giving him that money? By the way, no, he has to earn it. In fact, Robux are what we do for allowance. Basically, there's no more dollars. So this is like what we thought was going to happen with crypto. It's just happening in a digital in a digital world with with Fortnite's V Bucks with Roblox. It's like digital economies are being built within games, and we'll see if that shapes out to be kind of what everyone kind of wants to call the metaverse. If you ever read Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, that's kind of this concept of our our younger generation is going to live inside these digital worlds. But in terms of what you're what you're alluding to, Eric. Um, it's a shift that we've seen in the business model, right? When I was when I was growing up, you'd go to GameStop, you'd buy the physical version of the game, you'd go home and you'd play it with a friend or a brother or or your sister or whomever, and that was kind of the extent of the engaging with the content. Now what we've seen is via technology and, and kind of online gaming more broadly, the ability for games companies to deliver new and engaging content over the internet. So you you know. What that's meant is a shift in the in business models, one to kind of this more uh, games as a service model where games are free to play and are monetized via in-game monetization, uh, kind of what we call microtransactions, right? Buying a new outfit for your character, buying a new dance move, whatever it might mean. Um, and, and that's ultimately meant over the past several years, it's meant multiple expansion for a lot of the game publishers. Because if you're able to deliver content digitally, that can be a whole lot more profitable from a margin standpoint than having to ship out physical games every time you know you're trying to put out new content. And and, and taking oh. that taking that one step further, what what it's also meant is intellectual property's never been more valuable than it is right now in gaming. People are playing the same games now for five, 10 years. 
and, and that's kind of we're seeing the development of franchises the same way we've seen it in Hollywood and blockbuster movies is is IP is super, super valuable right now because you can continue to monetize it again and again. Matt, let's bring you in here. That IP conversation, the 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 producers of this, who are the players that that you as an analyst you're you're most interested in watching? One of the big names that everyone looks at is Take Two because they own Rockstar and everyone knows Grand Theft Auto. And to to further Will's point about comparing to the box office, basically everybody saw Avengers Endgame. Um, most successful movie in the box office ever. So Grand Theft Auto V cost about half to make versus um, Avengers Endgame, and it's made more than double lifetime. So to kind of put it in perspective, the biggest video games out there are much more profitable over time than, than any movie that's ever been made. And that's and that's mostly because of what Will was alluding to, the fact that of this live services model. So take two, I mean, Tencent, the... the HK listed China company is the global leader in the industry. But if you dig into 10 cents weeds, they have investments and ownership of multiple gaming companies globally. Um, they own Riot Games, who makes League of Legends. They they own stakes in Activision and Ubisoft. So they're, 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 they're global. Electronic Arts, everyone knows for the sports games. They don't own that intellectual property, but they built up these, these licenses that are almost impenetrable by by competition so they have de facto monopolies in in the sports arena where they where they where they compete the best uh you know and then you also look at companies i mentioned ubisoft they have some great ip but all of the biggest companies that that are in these etf indices you know like wills like like the like the nerd uh, etf these are the industry leaders and the value does come from the intellectual property for sure i also want to bring up these two companies that have been, you know, pitted in like a decades long rivalry and they're, this rivalry is about to continue again with a kind of a new chapter and that's Sony and Microsoft, right. Who are known for consoles. Right. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that's really been interesting with gaming is obviously everybody's got smartphones. You got games on all those, but the consoles remain sort of the, the heartbeat of the gaming industry. And both of them are about to bring out, new consoles by the end of the year. What What's that going to do to the business? It's an exciting time to be a gamer. 2020 is just an amazing year. You have the new consoles, as you mentioned. Cloud gaming is is starting to emerge. Um, and then you factor in the COVID boost. But for sure, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I personally have been an Xbox owner my whole life. Um, I plan on buying both. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will be I will be that that weird nerd that that buys both this time <laughs> around. You look at it at the end of the day, um, you know, if we wind the clock back a little bit, when we had the seventh generation cycles, that uh, consoles, that was the Xbox 360 and the PS3. Microsoft and Sony basically were 50-50. They, they basically sold the same number of consoles. But then in the most recent generation that was started in 2013 with the PS4 and the Xbox One, Sony has outsold Microsoft more than two to one. And the main driver of that has been their exclusive content. Their, their self-developed games that they make as well as third-party games they get exclusive distribution for. Sony realized that was gonna be their competitive uh, advantage over Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft tried to be a home entertainment platform and it didn't, didn't resonate and they didn't have the games to back up the platform and that's what led to Sony dominating. So Microsoft has made a lot of moves in the last couple of years. They, they doubled their studio count to over 10 now um, by with acquisitions of smaller studios to bolster their content. They're also really pushing subscriptions. They have their Xbox Game Pass subscription service, which has tons of, it has over 200 games in there. I 
literally haven't been using it nonstop, um, you know, during the, during the lockdowns, don't tell my boss, but, um, yeah, uh, you know, we've been, uh, you know, playing lots of games there. They have over 10 million subscribers in there now. And now with cloud gaming, they're going to bundle their cloud gaming right into those subscriptions. So it won't be any additional cost to the user. So, um, Microsoft is, is taking a different route to differentiate itself. You know, the Xbox, the new console is going to be the most powerful box but they're also giving you other ways to, to, to interact with their services and their games. And at the end of the day, as Will mentioned, this games as a service model is all about engagement. And they don't care where they get that engagement from, whether it's their game or someone else's game, whether you're playing on a phone, a console, or a PC, they just want you in their ecosystem. And, and this has been a big culture shift for Microsoft in the last few years, not just in gaming. I mean, their entire business has gone from being a closed ecosystem to an open cloud architecture, and their gaming business is now just following that. Now, I will just add that we in the U.S. and in the West love to talk about console gaming because there's a very high console penetration rate. People grew up with the Super Nintendo. Um, if you look across the globe, I really see the biggest opportunity in mobile. Because what's going on right now is smartphone technology has gotten so good that you can play the best video games in the world, if you want to call them AAA video games, on iPhone 5s, on Android potatoes, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Um, <laughs> what that's really done is two things. It's made games even more global than they already were. And in doing so has really unlocked emerging markets. And I look at Latin America and Southeast Asia as really kind of the two most exciting growth areas for the gaming industry going forward. And it's all about introducing new gamers who never had a, had a Super Nintendo growing up that are now getting introduced via smartphones and, and to the best games in the world. And I think that's a really important point that's going on right now. Okay, so now comes the, the, the most important question that I'm gonna ask in the whole interview. How much do you game on a day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> like 24 hours in a day, how much do you dedicate to gaming? Um, I haven't been I haven't been gaming recently, but I would say, I don't know, maybe a half hour. Like it's it's great because nowadays you can, you know, you can just jump into a game, play one, play one round or match and that and then kind of sign off and do that, you know, whenever you want. Well, that's it that that's just that's disappointing. That's disappointing. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm a solid four hours a day or so easily. Oh my God. <laughs> um, I, I wake up early in the morning just so I can play video games during lockdown. You know, I normally am a wake up early, go to the gym, go to work person, but there's no going to work. So and it's very easy just to sit in front of the TV when you're home and play. So my wife and I, we beat Overcooked 2. That's a great game to play as a couple. It really works in your communication skills. And if you survive that game without ripping each other's throats out, that, that's a huge accomplishment. I've beaten Forza Horizon 4, which is this huge open world racing game. That's what I've been playing recently. But I, I played through the entire Halo collection because the new Halo is coming out at the end of the year. So I was like, I got to play all the games again and get ready for the new game. So I've been playing everything that I can get my hands on. But it's all in the subscription service that I told you about. So it's like, you know, it's already paid for. It's just there. I just got to play it. So it's it's fantastic. But no, I've definitely been playing more since the lockdowns. And, you know, our, our estimates that we've published on the terminal on BI Go, I always have to throw the plug. Um, you know, we've looked at the user base expanding about 30% globally for gamers since, since the start of lockdowns in mid-March. Um, revenue is up. You know, the growth rate, Will was talking about a high single digit pace is like the long-term trend. But we're about 10 to 20 points higher than that during this period. Um, and, and looking at the U.S., you know, looking at the U.S. mobile market, for example, grew 60% in the second quarter. So, so the numbers are pretty huge right now. Just go to the numbers. How many people game at a, in the world? 
If is there an, uh, some kind of a way to estimate that, or what percentage of people? I mean, the numbers you hear thrown around are somewhere around two and a half billion. Now that includes uh, definitely includes mobile, right? And it definitely includes also kind of what I would call casual or hyper casual mobile, right? Which is Candy Crush, Words with Friends. Those count as games in that calculation. But I mean, over two billion's a big number, no matter how you want to slice it. If you're talking hardcore gamers, like the guys like me that are that play multiple hours a day, it's still in the hundreds of millions globally for sure. Um, when you add up console PC and the hardcore mobile players, I mean, in China, there's lots of hardcore mobile players because you know that's where all the game development is. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Most of these video game ETFs have a good amount of exposure in Asia. In fact, Asia is typically the predominant area. U.S. might be 30, 40% typically. Um, there's one company in there that is at the top of a lot of these. And I, I, gotta, I see it all the time as an ETF analyst. But again, I'm an ETF analyst, so I don't dig into the companies, which is Tencent. Um, you know, they're also in cloud computing ETFs. They're obviously in emerging markets and China ETFs. Um, Will, talk to me about why it's in there, how much of their revenue actually comes from gaming, and like who's running Tencent? Are they, why are they so good? Like they seem to just keep rising in the ranks of these ETFs, um, and they're, they're everywhere now. Yeah, I mean, t at a higher level, Tencent is, I think, just past Alibaba as the biggest company in China on a market cap basis. So it is a behemoth. It is an internet giant that just so happens to have kind of really built an empire focused around gaming. And I think China is a, is a kind of a unique market where they were able to start in gaming as kind of the core of their business and expand from there. In the US, you're kind of seeing large tech get into gaming a little bit later. Um, but in terms of Tencent, I like to call them like a mini gaming and esports ETF on their own because of how many uh, great investments they've made into the space and how many companies under like subsidiary companies within their portfolio that they have that are doing really impressive things. To give you a few examples, um, Tencent bought Riot Games, which is League of Legends, probably the biggest esport in the world. They bought that um, a few years back. They also own around 40% of Epic Games, which is Fortnite. They own Supercell, which is Clash of Clans, a big mobile esport. So they've really built like the premier, they also own 5% of Activision Blizzard and a few percent in Ubisoft. So they're, they've really built just kind of a tremendous portfolio of underlying, um, underlying companies that are doing things in the games industry on the, on the game development side. They also have stakes in, in, in a few Chinese game streaming platforms that, are, that have been great investments for them as well. So they've done a ton in terms of investing capital 
And I almost look at them as like a Berkshire Hathaway East, if you will. Uh, if you look at how many public companies or companies they've had go public in their portfolio and how well they've done. And Matt, let me just follow up with that. It, you know, uh, Will just said esports a couple times. Um, just define this and like what section of this whole revenue pie is esports. And I will anecdotally tell you, I asked my nine year old last night, what would you rather do? Go to go to an Eagles game, right? From I'm from Philly, or watch a bunch of guys play Roblox. And I, my heart broke. <laughs> he picked. He picked. Watch people play Roblox. I'm like, that just makes no sense to me. Because when I was in the '80s, yeah, you'd stand around the the uh, Pac-Man game if some guy was on fire. But I wasn't going to go and watch. I, I was more interested in actual sports. Um, are real sports going to fade away and esports kind of like take over? Is that what we're looking at here? I don't. I don't think it'll fade away. It's just a, it's just an additional, you know, differentiated offering. Look, I mean, esports. there's lots of ways to measure it and what you count as esports, but it's, it's a couple billion dollars on top of the numbers that Will and I have already been discussing. It's in addition to that. Uh, most of that comes from, from uh, media rights and selling the rights for like streaming on the internet or even on TV. Uh, you know, speaking of Philly, you know, the Overwatch League, that's one of Activision's leagues. They had the finals in Philly last year. Um, you know, Comcast has been a big supporter of that. They own one of the franchises, um, you know, and then they have a, they're building a stadium in Philly and esports arena. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot of investment is going into esports. And, you know, at the end of the day, the, you know, for the large video game publishers, esports is going to be very incremental in terms of the, the profit contribution. Like it's basically break even for Activision at this point. But what it does, it's, it's much higher return on your marketing spend. Because if you're going to go out there and promote your game as a competitive game, anyone can get this good and rise to these ranks. It's a great, more direct way to bring more people into your ecosystem, sell more copies of your game, generate more engagement with more players. So for them, you know, even if they break even on actually running a sports league, they benefit just because more people play their games, more people spend money in their games. Now, now I would say, I, I, I know what kind of you're, you're talking about, which is this one $2 billion esports industry. The way I look at it, it's around 45 to 55. And, and in doing so, I'm really counting the games that are predominant esports. Let's call it a League of Legends or a Counter-Strike. The revenues that those games, which have really, in my mind, been driven by competitive play and people watching other people play, if we count those as esports revenues, totally different. Um, I think what Matt, Matt's referring to is kind of these, these in-person events that look and feel like traditional sports and, and, and the media rights off of those, which are starting to get sizable in certain cases, but that's not quite there yet. Eric, to answer your question, are sports going away? Um, we recently launched a product that's kind of more focused on the traditional sports side. So I, my personal belief is no, but I, I do think you could see certain sports. I'm, I'm looking at you like the MLB in particular that deals with, you know, a very high average age of its fan base that just is kind of phased out and goes the way of yeah. boxing or horse racing. Uh, just from a demographic standpoint, and that I could see kind of baseball being replaced if it doesn't figure out a way to kind of speed up the game and make it more engaging and exciting. Totally agree. But I, I, I've stopped baseball for the most part. I was just going to say, if you look at the NBA, the NBA is a is a joint venture partner in the NBA 2K League, which is the esports league based on Take-Two's video game 2K, uh, NBA 2K. So the NBA is all in on esports. They get it. Um, I agree with Will, you know, especially during lockdowns, you saw MLB players streaming MLB, the show on Twitch all the time. Tommy Canely, who's a pitcher for the Yankees, 
who's an absolute psycho. He was amazing to watch on Twitch. I would wake up early in the morning just to watch him. Um, and I'm super pumped for baseball to be back. I'm a huge baseball fan. And the Yankees are going to, you know, just the evil empire is back. Let's go Yankees. But uh, the more that professional leagues see value in supporting an esports league to complement what they're doing, it brings in the younger generation who is kind of disenfranchised with sitting around and watching a football game for four hours a day. What we're seeing going on right now with no traditional sports now, hopefully that all changes Thursday and we continue on with the schedule is a unique uh, amount of attention being paid to sports simulation esports. So Matt, Matt talks about the NBA 2K league or, or Madden or MLB the show, these, these games that are meant to simulate traditional sports in normal environment, those aren't the, those aren't the games that people are, you know, tons of people are watching. I think a lot of people think that they hear esports, they think it's like, you know, it's people playing virtual football. It's really not. And I think the, the fantasy games, if you will, or, or shooting games, things that you can't replicate in real life um, are the ones that really attract people's attention. It's kind of this more of it, or more of even more of an escape than I think you get from the kind of sports sim title. Okay, Will, I want to bring it back to the the ETF, right? Because as we mentioned at the top, there's sort of four gaming ETFs. You're behind Nerd, but you've got Gamer, Hero, ESPO. What distinguishes the products from one another and, and specifically Nerd from the competitive set? Yeah, I mean, I think you, if you look across the board, they've all performed rather well. So there's kind of a, a correlation there, to, which you would expect. Um, for us, really, we try and take a, a kind of a pure play approach to all the products that we're going to put out in terms of thematic equity. So you can imagine a scenario where, you know, you have a Microsoft or a Sony that we talked about included in an ETF like this. Well, they don't really generate a whole lot of revenues from their gaming segment rel relative to their overall business. We do two things. One, we try and identify companies that are really, really kind of tied to this theme of esports and game streaming. And two, assign a higher weight to those companies uh, and we kind of have a tiered methodology that helps get us to kind of what we believe is a really unique place, not waiting based on market cap, but rather kind of this pure play exposure concept. And what it's meant for us kind of um, year to date is, is some of our biggest holdings, um, maybe our underweights are not even included in some of the other ETS, like the Chinese game streaming platforms, for example. So one other uh, follow-up I have for this is, you know, if we talk about the numbers, like we've talked about, the, the, the CTF has barely been out a year now. What took so long? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite, I'm surprised as well. And I think that, you know, we launched it for a reason, right? We thought there was, there was a huge, huge opportunity here. Um, but I think it still comes back to this concept of now we're doing things differently. I think we're marketing to a younger audience. We're, we're kind of taking a different approach in ETF distribution. But um, when you talk about coming back to Eric's earlier conversation around advisors really being comfortable and understanding, um, it felt like there was so much in the news over the past couple of years with, with Fortnite and, and, and Ninja and Drake playing and having hundreds of thousand people watch them on Twitch that it kind of felt like it was esports and gaming in the U.S. were just getting to the point where they were mainstream. And even those, those advisors who maybe had never picked up a game themselves were kind of able to they had heard about it, and, and that, I think, played into the timing. And, and if I could add to that as well, because I think if you think about the fundamentals of the industry and how it's changed in the last decade also, I think that also plays an important role because a lot of investors, a lot of you know, uh, RIAs and whatnot that are older 
when they think of video game companies, these are hit-driven businesses just like the box office companies, where mm -hmm. historically, before this games as a service model, you live and die by every game. And so you, it was, you, know, you had beta risk on the upside and you have massive negative downside skew in these companies that were you know, living, dying by single, by single games at a time. But now we're in a world where you have these large live services games that are highly recurring in their revenue. You know, Electronic Arts, 85 to 90% of their revenue and over 90% of their cash flow is basically recurring now. You couldn't say that 10 years ago. And so because of that dynamic, you look at a business, a business model that is that is much more SaaS like than it was box office like 10 years ago. And that that is starting to change investors perceptions. And you saw this start to really take hold in 2016 and 2017. That's when multiples of the sector really started to detach away from other media stocks and trade more like tech stocks. And since then, it's kind of been in that range. And, and so, you know, it took a couple of years for investors to buy into that thesis. But since then, um, that 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 really that new mindset has taken hold, and I think you've also seen that in the flows into funds like Wills as well. Yeah, I, I do think this is a, a you know an issue that is going to just persist. Uh, I polled people on Twitter a year ago, and perception too frivolous was the number one answer for why the, the video game ETFs haven't attracted the kind of assets that robotics, cybersecurity, and even cannabis has despite having numbers that are as good or better in terms of performance and revenue. Uh, and then the second choice was ignorance unaware. They're missing a lot of growth right now. Uh, it just, it's just weird to me. I feel like if you did one of those old school uh, taste tests and you put up the numbers but not the name of the ETF, <laughs> people would pick the video game ETF over those others. But then you show the name and they're like, oh, I didn't want to pick that. I think I think another thing that and, and we kind of touched on it a bit earlier, but is the exposures in the underlying industry, just in terms of the nature of which companies are public, there aren't that many household names that are US listed. You have Activision Blizzard, Electronic Arts, Take Two, and maybe throw Zynga in there, and that's it. And I think without kind of in the investing public having been conditioned to understand these companies, follow earnings, things of that nature. When you put a whole portfolio of names in front of them that they're maybe not as familiar with, it kind of takes a little bit of time. Let me watch a little bit um, versus, uh, you know, maybe maybe other sectors where you've got 50, 60 plus percent U.S. names that you're all familiar with. And I would also say back to Will's earlier point about Microsoft and Sony, a lot of the companies aren't pure plays in gaming. You know, Microsoft is one of the biggest gaming companies in the world, but gaming is only 10% of Microsoft. Sony is a bank. People forget that Sony also is a bank. Um, C Limited, which is one of the best uh, performing emerging market stocks in the world right now, um, they're a huge gaming company in Southeast Asia, but they also have this massive e-commerce business that's growing at 100% a year. So that that also affects the business model as well in the sense that these lar the largest players are diversified tech conglomerates, you know, basically. And then you have smaller players that are also diversified as well. You only have a handful of pure plays. One thing we're seeing happen right now, um, and it's happening in both the West and the East, is big technology companies, the largest technology companies in the world, are all making investments in terms of human capital and millions of dollars into video game streaming platforms. So you have Amazon that famously bought Twitch. Google's investing into YouTube gaming. Facebook has Facebook. And then if you go to kind of Asia Pacific, Tencent's invested into Huya and Douyu, Sony and Billy Billy. And I think really what this all has, has, and this has transpired over the last few years, is it speaks to the fact that one, gaming's becoming mainstream. But two, I think there's something bigger at work here where 
large tech is figuring out that gaming, whatever form that kind of takes, in this case, streaming platforms, really can be a user acquisition tool to kind of, and kind of be that top of funnel um, for kind of building relationships with a younger audience and having them, you know, over time convert to potentially higher margin businesses. And there's something like really powerful about the biggest tech companies in the world investing into game streaming. Um, I think it's a little bit early to say what their end game is there, but it's just, it's so fascinating to watch. And, and I think really important to note that the biggest tech companies all say, hey, there's something here. This demographic's really valuable. Let's, let's invest. It's also important to note that a lot of those companies are the big cloud companies, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and cloud gaming, as I mentioned, is starting to take off. And over time, I think you're going to see a blending of streaming and cloud gaming. I mean, think about it this way. You could pay to play Fortnite with Ninja. You hop into his Twitch stream, and then all of a sudden you pay a premium and you can jump right into the game with him. You know, these are the type of things, this is where gaming is going, going towards what Will was talking about, the metaverse, being hyper-engaged with audiences. This is where gaming is going, and I think that's that's one of the key trends. This is like a decade-long trend, but this is where I think we're going. I can tell you guys are just like nerding out. You could, <laughs> I could see you guys Pun intended. just going like hours at a bar over this stuff. Uh, and no, you're excited. Why go it's to great. a bar? Just yeah. go to a video game. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. That doesn't exist anymore, right? <laughs> Social interaction? Screw that. Okay. But uh, we'll go to a bar inside of, of a video game. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Is, there a, is there a video game called bar? Or? You just go to Grand Theft Auto Probably. online. You go to a bar. That's right. Yeah. Speaking, well, this this actually riffs, uh, merges into my question. I just saw Ready Player One with my son and it was a good movie, you know, it was, um, we enjoyed it, but I think it was Ramp or somebody on Twitter said that's what they see as being the most accurate depiction of what the future will be like. And I was thinking more about it and the way you guys are talking, I'm like, will there be like this world in which we communicate in and live in digitally that isn't the real world that sort of becomes bigger and bigger and maybe even at the expense of the real world? And does that start in September because we're all in a pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think if you'd speak to most people, it's kind of it's 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 not if but when that kind of really takes hold and becomes kind of a bigger part of, of culture. I mean, you're seeing pockets of it now. Um, you're seeing uh, graduations held within Minecraft. You're seeing dates inside Roblox. You're seeing um, music concerts. Travis Scott inside of Fortnite, right? Like these games are becoming platforms for things other than what the original intention and the code that was written for people to try and win the games. They're becoming more like social media um, in that sense. And I, I think um, in my mind, it, it's, it, you know, I actually, if you, if you go on Twitter about a year ago, I asked Tim Sweeney, who's the CEO of Epic on Twitter. I said, do you view Fortnite as a game or a platform? And he famously said, I view it as a game, but ask me again in 12 months. And I think all of these, game CEOs are really thinking about how to how to make their IP bigger than just a game in a place where people engage more and more. And then the amount of monetization potential that you have there, I mean, you talk about in-game advertising, you talk about brand activations inside of games and, and just kind of this entire new world is opened up. But it is a scary concept, right? Like now I think we're uniquely the entire world is kind of sharing in this concept of living virtually right now. So it maybe more than ever seems like something that, Hey, that's not so crazy. <laughs> um, but I think it's really, it's not if, but when. 
I will caveat and say, because I am a big VR, virtual reality skeptic, I don't think this is going to be everyone putting on a virtual reality headset and completely disassociating themselves from the world around you. You guys have kids. Could you imagine like locking yourself out with noise canceling headphones and kids running around and God forbid they hurt themselves and you have no clue because you're in the metaverse. Like, so, so I, I think there's limits to it, but I agree, but I just, I don't think it'll be exactly like what we've seen in the movies where, or what's coming in cyberpunk 2077 later this year from CD project. Who's a great video game developer where you, your character inside the game puts on a VR headset inside the game to go inside a neural network inside the video game. Um, that's coming later this year in November, and it's going to be an amazing game. But, you know, so I don't think that kind of thing happens. I think it's going to be continuing more of what we've seen, you know, as, as Will said perfectly, video games morphing into social networks. These are the new social networks. These, this is what's displacing Facebook. Okay, so closing questions. Best game of all time and the game that I need to go play when I get off of this interview. Oh man, that's so difficult. I'm going to show off that I'm not as hardcore of a gamer, but I want to say the best video game of all time is Halo. Halo 1, the original Halo. And maybe that's that's like very specific to my age. And in terms of what you got to go play now, um, I mean, if you've never played Fortnite, it's free to play. Like you got to try it or Call of Duty Warzone, one of those two. Matt? I'm going to say Doom, the original Doom, because that kind of was the precedent for like all sorts of modern shooter games going forwards. Um, Games that I have spent the most time in, my favorite game of all time was Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, Um, (laughs) you know, back in the heyday. Um, And what I've been playing now, I mentioned it, I've been playing Forza Horizon 4, and it's just fun because you get to jump cars off of mountains. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, Matt Kannerman, Will Hershey, thank you guys so much for joining us on Trillions. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Matt at The Canterbot. And you can find Will at Maybe Bullish. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.